You're listening to Surfer vs. Planet, a wave changer podcast hosted by me, Tom Wilson. Each episode features inspiring talks from the creative space where surfing and sustainability meet. I'll be talking to surfers, designers, industry experts, and original thinkers, highlighting some of the fascinating work going on here in Australia and around the world with the aim of creating a greener, cleaner, and more responsible surfing industry. Wave Changer is a program of Surfers for Climate, and you can learn more about our work at wavechanger.org and surfersforclimate.org.au. The whole team at Wave Changer and Surfers for Climate acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the elders past, present and emerging. This episode features a chat with the legendary Rhonda Harper, founder of Black Girl Surf, a non-profit organization dedicated to supporting black girls and women who have dreams of competing and developing careers as professional surfers. G'day Rhonda, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. You're joining us today from the US. I'm in San Jose, California. I'm a Northern California girl. Well, we call ourselves Central California girls. But yeah, I'm 20 miles south of Santa Cruz. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm going to give you a, a brief introduction, but there's a lot to talk about. You've achieved so much. You're the driving force behind multiple passionate paddle outs. You've done fantastic work with Surfrider in the US. You're the founder of the hugely successful coaching program, Black Girls Surf now supported by Hurley, which is huge. You're a multiple award winner with recent accolades with the Webby Awards and the Anthem Awards for the truly epic film Emerger. And the list just goes on. I'm going to put all the, the links to some of your stuff in the show notes. But Rhonda, can you just tell me how this all started for you? This started at a very young age. I can honestly say that. I've actually been like this my whole life, but I had other distractions, which is the reason why I say um, I'm the original Dorothy because I'm originally from Kansas City and that is in the middle of the United States, the most landlocked place you could possibly be in the US and that's where I'm from. But in the summer, there's always movies on that you know you, you watch over and over again. Um, and in the summers, it's so hot we stay in and we watch Beach Blanket Bingo, How to Stop a Wild Bikini, Gidget, and all of those summer 1950, 1960 movies. And they would play it. I'm from the 70s. I'm a kid that grew up in the 70s. So these were fairly new for us. I think that captured me as a kid. And then by the time I'm 10, my parents are being relocated from the middle of the United States to the West Coast, California. And there were two places, there were two places on the stop. Either we were going to stay down with the Beverly Hillbillies or we were going to stay in this place that was similar to Kansas City, which was called San Jose, California, which was the, the buddings of Silicon Valley, right? So the very first IBM is located in San Jose. So we opted for the more Kansas City-like, of course, because we couldn't afford to live by the Beverly Hillbillies. So we, we moved to San Jose, California, and um, my mother worked for EEOC. My father always worked in you know the unemployment government office, but those two together during my childhood 
were my role models for who I am now. And I didn't remember, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, I'm never going to grow up to be like my parents. Like, I'm never going to be like them. They're always gone. They're always traveling, you know. But what I didn't realize as a child was, as my parents were fighting for civil rights, they were fighting for freedom. They were fighting for, you know, justice in America. And one was the president of, of the NAACP, the other one is the vice president. And they went on with prison reform and they went on to doing the, dealing with the juvenile justice system. So those things, I was already a card carrying member of the NAACP by the time I was five. And so this is the, this is the journey. This is how you start because you start seeing these movies and you don't see yourselves. And then by the time I'm 10, we're in California now. And I, the first place my mom wanted to take us was Disneyland. Now the, the trade-off for coming to, to San Jose or just moving period is we all had to share rooms now. There are three boys and three girls. So we're like the Brady Bunch, but now we all have to share rooms, but it was only if we could have a swimming pool, right? That was the, that was the caveat because we didn't want to go. We couldn't, we weren't allowed to go to the community pool that was close to us. We would have to walk into the black neighborhoods to go swim down there. So that was the caveat. Like we're getting a pool, we're not moving. We're staying right here. You, you take that and you go. And they they got us a pool. But when we got by the time we got to California, because we took the long route, the pool was green. So they said, okay, we're going to Disneyland or we're going to the beach. And the beach was 20 miles away. And Disneyland was 100 and 300 miles away. So we opted for the beach. And they took us to Lighthouse Beach in Santa Cruz, California. It was the very first time I ever laid eyes on the ocean and this picture behind me reminds me of the very first time that I that I even witnessed the beach because it was such a magical place for some kid from Kansas who's never seen an endless pool of water that is the most mesmerizing thing and I'm seeing it like firsthand and I'm touching it and I just that was it I was in love very first very first wave what I didn't realize is that the very first beach that I went on. Now I realize what beach is on. The waves are absolutely crazy. So now as an adult, when I look down at those waves that we rode as a kid, it I was destined to become a surfer or somebody in the water because anybody that can brave that, and I mean, these, these waves are just coming in and they're pounding. And we're just out there like, hey, just in love. And uh, my mom was like, do you want to go to Disneyland? It was like two weeks later. My mom was like, you want to go to Disneyland? I was like, no, I don't want to go to Disneyland. But can I go back to the beach? Like I wanted, that was, I I'd found that, that, that magical place where I wanted to be. And I, I remember just sitting through the whole time I was at Disneyland, the whole time I was in the cup, the whole time I was on all magical rides, I was just pouting the entire time. The only one I did like was the log ride because at least you got to get wet, but I was done with Disneyland. That was it. I went one time and I remember it. I was like 13 years old, 14 years old, and I've never gone back to Disneyland since. I've always opted for the beach. And so, so by the time I'm 15 now, I'm, I'm going, Kansas City and San Jose at the time were so much alike as far as cultural. It was still like a really agricultural and tech was like budding. Like I said, there was IBM there and the tension that you wouldn't think in California that it would have racial tension like this, but it was the exact same thing. Only now you're in California, right? Now you're in the land of oranges and, uh, and, and surf. Right. And, but it was the same racial tension. I started getting in trouble early on in school. But the best thing was that my parents would get on these hops, these military hops. Every time they, every, every chance they could, they would get on a hop for $5 and take us to Hawaii. 
Like that was Hawaii was like next door to us as kids. That's how we felt because we were always there. I remember going there a little bit later. I was just like, okay, we're going. you know, like I gotta go again. Like why? So, but I ended up going to school over there because I got in trouble. My parents like sent me off to the North Shore to go live with my 19 year old sister, and it's just a 15 year old going to be 16 year old and a 19 year old in a townhouse in the Kuilima Estates. And I'm on, I'm on punishment, right? So my restriction is I can't leave the resort. Okay, I don't know if you've been to this resort, but they hold the surfer pole awards there every once in a while. Um, and it's gorgeous. But back then it was, and this is my first awareness with inequity as far as access to, to, the, to the shores, because at the time it was owned by the Hiltons and the Hiltons had... Um, you couldn't, if you were a local, you couldn't surf there. You couldn't, you, you couldn't use the break there. It was like, the, it was like private property. And I think this is where I first started learning about how everybody should have access to, to the ocean because I would go in, cause you have to go into this little driveway and then there's this little box right there. I would go, even when I wasn't going to go to surf, I would go and just like sign a friend in so that they could have access, like sign them into our apartment so that they could surf back the same spot that I was surfing at. And that, the reason why it was so isolated, it was because nobody could get back there. So when I say I had the beach totally to myself, I'm literally saying I pretty much had the beach totally to myself because during the off season, when there's not tourists, there's no one out there. The locals don't have access. And I, and I thought that was unfair. Like I would bring people, I just thought it was unfair. I didn't know why it was unfair because I was young. But I just knew it was unfair. If you live there, you should have access to that beach regardless. And, and I think that came from my mom and dad's parenting too. You should be able to go anywhere. Um, but that was the first time I really looked at the inequity in, in access to the ocean. And it, and it probably stayed with me when I climbed aboard Surfrider. And that's what their, pretty much what, what their mission was at the time, was that you know, access and and in ocean conservative and I and you know being in the ocean you you know it I mean I've I'm in Santa Cruz where they have they do the uh, bacterial measurements all the time and Santa Cruz is actually one of the first beaches that I've ever seen actually do that on a daily basis where they would go out and rate whether you should be in the water or not because of the bacteria levels and different types of bacteria you didn't even think about but it's right where you're learning how to surf it's Cowles Beach which is the learning beach for Santa Cruz. And I think that pretty much was my like wake up call because it's right there. It's accessible. You can read and say, okay, I'm not going to get in this water because these are the things that are in the water and this is what can happen to you. So I think that's why I delve off into surf rider, but on the surf level and how I'm there, I'm just out of recreational as anybody else. I'm now, uh, a celebrity designer and I'm at the top of my game and I'm about to retire. Um, and I said, you know, what am I going to do next? And I said, well, let me, what the thing, what my basic problem was is that I couldn't fit into normal swimwear. So my thing was, I'm going to just start a clothing line because I was already a fashion designer. And in order to do so, you have to have a target market. So you have to do the research. And at that time I was in fashion design school so I'm doing, learning how to do the research and I'm researching, I'm trying to find imagery and, and stories of black surfers because I knew what I wanted. I knew what the aesthetic was. You know, I'm, I'm pretty groovy. I grew up in the seventies. So I'm like, I want this like 
soul, Afro soul, like beachy vibe. That's what I want for yeah. my clothes, right? I, I I have the aesthetic like down, right? Big collars, the whole thing, the, the wide leg pants, the whole line, everything. And that was my first clothing line. And that's exactly what I designed in the first line that I put out. But then I needed somebody to represent that line, right? So you go looking for these people and they're not there. They are literally, they have to be people, especially in surfing. They have to be people that are on the tour or, you know, seen there's that inspiration for even the next projects. When I started working and, and, and trying to find groups of people who surfed, I was the only person in Los Angeles that I knew who surfed. So I found this little club down in Los Angeles and I said, okay, well, this is the budding, but they were older gentlemen and you need somebody younger, right? To be on the tour and they just weren't there. So in that research, I found the beach inkwell in, in Santa Monica. And they, I mean, there were so many different terminologies for it. it was called Spooks Beach. It was, there were so many different names for it, but inkwell was the predominant um, name for that. And I said, here is a beach with so much history that has been forgotten. And it just shows up in one news article. And there needs to be something else done, right, about it. Because I had just heard about Manhattan Beach around the same time. I In that research, I heard about both beaches, which is Bruce's Beach, which was owned by, you know, African-Americans and then was seized by the city. Um, and thank God they finally got it back, which is fantastic. But that is the start of the social justice side. So there's beginnings to each one of these sides. And I always have to, like I said, being like a Dorothy, you go and you find the Tin Man and then you got to work on his, you know, his brain or his heart, whatever it is that he's trying to get. So in that I sidetracked and I said, listen, you know, there was some, some racial tension going on at Santa Monica High, and here is this beach, and here is this African-American surfer, and then I started doing, you know, research on him, and I find out that he's Latino and, and African-American, and I'm like, okay, this is it. So this is how you bridge these two together. Now, the racial tension that were going, was going on at Samo High was between Blacks and Latinos, and so here was Nick, right? This Afro-Latino statuesque God, surf God. Let's put him in Santa Monica and, and see what happens. Like they, they have, a that's a commonality that everybody can, I mean, white, black, Mexican, you all can relate because right, you got surfer, you have the Afro-American and you have, this is the perfect mix. And then you have this beautiful beach on top of it. Why doesn't anybody mark this thing so that other people can enjoy this? Mm -hmm. And so I went down to the city of Santa Monica when I saw helicopters um, flying over the high school because there was a riot. And uh, I walked in and I said, um, can you guys tell me um, how I get a plaque in Santa Monica? And they said, well, you know, you have to go write this thing. And I said, okay, go well, give it to me. You know, I'm one of those, like, give it to me. I'm going to solve it right now. Just give it to me. So they, and then I handed it to them. And before they read the paper, it was two African-American women. I'm never going to forget this. So before I hand the paper to them, they say, you know, you, if you're going to get this thing done, you have to do it tonight because we're doing the five-year budget. And if you don't get in there now, you know, you got another five years before you could come and ask us for anything. And I'm like, oh my God, okay, I've never 
never spoken person, except for when I was seven and I did like the Martin Luther King speech in front of the NAACP. Other than that, I'm not a public speaker. And so, so I was sitting, you know, I was like, okay, now I've got this other pressure. But when I hand them the paper, they read it and they see that I'm trying to get the plaque for, for African-Americans and for that beach. And you could see them tear up. Like you literally, and they were just like, you know, good luck, you know, and I'm getting goosebumps now just thinking about it. And they were like, good luck. I hope this goes through. And, you know, I called a bunch of people before and I asked them to come down because, you know, you need that support. Like I'm going to speak in public. I need a couple of people behind me, you know, to make me feel brave. And no one showed up. So I had to wait all the way to the public comments at the end. And then I, I asked him for it and I told them the significance of having something there for future generations was so important because we were losing our icons like Rosa Parks and Coretta Scott King had died really close together. And I'm like, this, you know, my, I'm always about that next generation. So when you do something like that and you walk away, you only have five minutes to talk and you walk away and you hear that ding, right? And they tell you to come back, you know, there's hope. Mm. right there I had hope for the future because they asked me where it was there was I don't even know probably 10 people on that panel who are from Santa Monica was the city council and they didn't know the location of Inkwell Beach I told them right then in that chamber and they said well you know call the city manager's office tomorrow morning and and we'll see what we can do and they approved it <laughs> I was amazed it took two years of fighting but they finally approved it and they, they put the demarcation down there. So if you go to Santa Monica and you go at the end of Bay Street and Pico, right in front of the Casa Del Mar Hotel, there's a plaque off to the left-hand side that reads, <laughs> this is a place of celebration and pain. And if you look off in the back, they perfectly put, because I ended up writing a press release behind it, the photo that I used in the press release, they had... Um, stenciled on the side of the new bathrooms in Santa Monica. So not only do you see the plaque, but in the background, you see the actual people who sat on that beach. It's an ominous sight for anybody who wants to go to the beach. If you don't feel included, I'm sure they're gonna do some wonderful things over there at Bruce's Beach, but that's one of the most ominous sights to see. It's just mm. a beautiful sight. Then this road crosses over to me writing the press release for, for this plaque dedication. And I send it off to um, a news agency called Black Athlete Sports Network. And they say, you know, they read it and they say, have you ever thought about writing, you know, for surfing? Because we didn't even know black people even surfed. And I said, okay. So they would send me out on assignments. I mean, I went to the Triple Crown. I was going to the Huntington Beach contest. I was going all over following the ASP, right? That was, that's like a dream job, right? You just, you know, you hear your name like announced on Alihi Beach. Thank you, Black Sports Network, you know, uh, in Hawaii for showing up. You know what I mean? That's like a big honor for somebody who knows that there's no one like us in the industry. And so after a while of going on all of these, I think it was Alihi Beach. I, after I did the Triple Crown in 2008, I said, that's it. I'm going to come from behind the desk go in front and start working on building something for us because why am I coming out here to uh, report on nothing and no one is doing anything you know there were like recreational surfers that would pop up every time I would do something then you would see you know that they focus on them for like a hot minute and then it just subside but it wasn't 
it wasn't, the industry wasn't reflecting it. It was just like news of the day and then bounce off. It, the industry wasn't changing. Mm -hmm. And so I said, and I know my own background. So <laughs> I said, you know, why not me? Take a different course on this. So I put the laptop down and just said, let's put a contest together in Sierra Leone. And when I did that, and on top of that, doing just that, I had a podcast like yourself. And that podcast gave me access to things like going down and commentating for a 24-hour celebrity surfathon with, you know, I'm in the same booth commentating a lot, standing next to Sean Thompson and PT Talent. Like this is, these are the avenues now that I'm starting to channel into. So I know that it's 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 going to be a lot and let me prepare myself and get the education so that when I'm talking to these people, they don't just say, oh no, this is another kid that just comes in, doesn't want to do anything and then she's gone. And oh, I came in and I knew, and when I picked up the mic to start commentating in front of 10,000 people, they understood that I knew the assignment. I knew exactly what a backhand car was. I knew where the spray was going and I added humor in there because I used to be a comedian. So I, you know, I added that in there and it gave me another avenue into the industry. So I was using these little things to build the resume that you need to come in here because you can't just come in here and just say, oh, I'm here and, and you have to listen to what I'm saying because I'm black. I'm literally walking the same route everybody else is and I'm seeing that opportunities that could, could be possible for other people but they just don't know how to get there, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm understanding that. And I just kept on and the people, we, we all got together and we said, let's, let's put this contest together. And we got a hold of the guys in Sierra Leone and we said, let's do this. And then the Roots were, was involved in it at some point because our tour manager that was doing the festival side was Tina Ferris who was their manager at the time and she's a surfer. But so you won't know people behind the scenes that actually do surf unless you have something like Black Girl Surf. So we're gonna mm -hmm. get to Black Girl Surf in a minute because <laughs> all the girls that were put, all the people that were putting Africa Surf and International together on the on the lower hand were all women. It was me, Suyan Mosley, people like Ingrid Walters, all of us, and Andrea Rapp, all of us girls were like, and then we added the guys. <laughs> like, yes, because we needed something solidified even for ourselves because we weren't seeing women of color in the contest. And so here it is. Africa Surf Inter International, Africa Surf International becomes an international contest for Pan-Afro surfers as a showcase so that sponsors could come. So we were inviting the sponsors to come so they could see that you, there's African talent, there's talent in Africa. And we started that in like 2007, just trying to showcase, just based off of one magazine article that we saw about Africa, well, that I saw about Africa. And I said, listen, we have to change the way people look at Africa because I know that is completely different from what they tell us because they've been telling us something different our whole lives. So let's just go and see for ourselves. We picked Sierra Leone because originally it was an amputee um, day of respite, right? So we were going over there basically doing surf therapy before it had a label to get these kids in the water and help them feel better about their surroundings and learn to trust outsiders again and just start to live because I mean, they were in civil war for so long. And it ended up being like, we, okay, we'll keep that part of it and then we'll add a contest and then we'll add education on there so that people can learn how, how surfers around the world can come and learn how to break into the industry from front to back, like sponsorship, getting your photos, 
all of the education that you need to get and blast off into the, the professional surf industry. And all the boys signed up. Yeah, we were, the, the ticket was filled. Like we didn't need anybody else, like no one. We had one girl and it, that was the only surfer girl, the female surfer from Sierra Leone. It was Kia de Tucumaro. And, and she was about 14, 15 years old at the time, but there was nobody else. We looked in all the associations because what we wanted to do was eventually have these kids, because the rumors were starting to swirl about the Olympics. They were swirling, but I mean, we, we were trying to take it as serious as possible, but we just thought that it was so far-fetched for it to actually go in. We were actually training for our national contest. So I was just like, just let's just, you know, let's just train a whole bunch of girls, you know? Let's just train a whole bunch of girls. Then when this opens up, we can, you know, we could fly, like we could fly and be free. We looked at associations, there were two little girls. They are now surfing. You probably know one of them, Sneem Akubu and, and Sam Keeley. Those were the two little girls, but they were so young. At that time, there was no way that we can send them to Sierra Leone from South Africa, right? Mm -hmm. They're both now professional surfers, but they were just too young at the time. We said, well, let's go look in West Africa. And just West Africa is easy to get get people in and uh, we found Haju in a, in a, just in a camp in West Africa, invited her to come to, to the United States and literally the rest of it is history because we have been nonstop since she landed on the shores of the United States. We've literally gone from having two girls, KK and Haju to hundreds, you know, in a very short period of time, this was a need that needed to be fulfilled and we've been able to influence these groups that you see now those groups were in existence before there was a black girl surf where everybody was centralizing themselves you know and they could see that somebody else okay that person in costa rica this person in you know who knew that the longboard champion in russia was a black female like who knew that mm -hmm. but if you go to black girl surf you'll find that out or that the first female surfer in in, in the united african-american um, female surfer in the U.S. is Sharon Schaefer. You wouldn't have known that mm -hmm. if you hadn't. Got, I mean, there were stories about it, but those stories were hidden. So when we did the paddle outs, my first inkling, my first thought, call Sharon, because Sharon was when I'm talking. Because what I did with the paddle outs was a little bit different. Because what I saw, we needed in the in the in the ocean and in on land and in the ocean was completely different from the way the world was seeing it at the time, right? We were seeing people that looked like me being killed, shot and killed, and other people were seeing animals being brutalized and oils being spilled, and the conversations were not connecting. They weren't, it was almost like I was watching two different worlds happen at the same time, and I, and I felt like if you care about the environment, you have to care about people. Like it, it, they just have, it, they go together. Why are you trying to save the, the ocean if it's not for the people? So why aren't these two marrying each other? And I couldn't, I couldn't grasp the connection. And so the paddle out was the best way for me to explain how some people in this industry see the world and the ocean and some people in the same industry see the world and people in general right so yes. we're looking i'm looking at it from a social 
aspect. They're looking at it from an environmental aspect, but I'm looking at it from an environmental aspect too, because the environment is just not about the ocean. It's also about all of the landfills that are in brown and black communities. It's also about lack of fresh water, you know, in first world and Flint, Michigan still doesn't have water. You know, these things are all, they all are connected, right? And, and, and the industry was showing them as two different things. And you saw the surfers speak out on one thing, but wouldn't speak out on the other thing. But then when they spoke out on it, it was in jest. It wasn't like a serious situation. Mm. And, uh, and I figured like, if I do these paddle outs, I have to have, what are the solutions to connect the two? And the only thing that connected all of us together was surfing because mm. we all love surfing. <laughs> that is a, you, you might not necessarily be like a people person and you might not necessarily be an animal person, but you're surfing. And so that's mm. the connection. And so that was my, that was the catalyst for how I felt of including the surf industry into this, this wide picture that we have, because they have been the voice for the ocean and people for so long, but they've been a bigger voice for the ocean. And it's about time they start concentrating on the people because the people actually buy the products that keep you moving. And if you stop paying attention to them, they're going to stop paying attention to you. Mm-hmm. And you have to worry about, you know, and I'm looking at that point, I'm looking at all the trade magazines and everybody's, you know, going out of business. And I'm like, if you had a little bit of diversity, you have another fan base, you have another spot mm. that you can go to, you have another avenue that's going to help you. And it might make a few people upset and uncomfortable, but we're in 2022. I mean, if you're still uncomfortable about seeing a surfer of color, you're in the wrong like decade. There's 1940, you probably need to 50. I'll give you 50 because 60, everybody was just kind of like, we're fighting wars and all kind of stuff. Yeah. We're trying to get it together by the 60s. But it, it's a whole other mindset. And for us on the other side of that coin, we're not saying we're better or look at me, look at me. What we're saying is give us the opportunity and the same access that you've been given so that we can do and excel in a sport that we love. Like, why are you the only ones benefiting from this situation? And I think that motivation and wanting to change that dynamic of it belongs to us and us being othered. We've been othered for so long, right? And I think it's now, you know, thank God for millennials because they came in and they were just like, we don't care about race. We just want to be free. That's it. <laughs> and, the, and the Gen Xers are just like, yeah, it's about time you guys showed up. We tried to tell them. Like, we did. We tried to tell everybody. We we're like, we're here. Like, you know, everybody just peace and love. And then nobody listened to us. Thanks so much for sharing that story. I love that you are so passionate about everyone having access to the ocean. And I love how that's the foundation of your social justice as well. Uh, It sounds like your parents were really important role models. What's your proudest achievement so far from everything you've talked about and and maybe some things you haven't talked about? I think the two, well, the thing I don't talk about much at all is having been honored by the mayor of Ngor 
and gifting us with beach property so that we can expand exactly what we're doing. And more so than the land itself, it was the intention. Because when he said, you came all the way from California to help us, we should have been doing this. So this is our gift to you so that you can continue to do the things that you're doing. When you get to that point of your career or or what you're trying to achieve, especially with so many obstacles as we had getting this far. Um, that's the main one that I don't speak of. I honestly have to say that the paddle outs and the response, the genuine response, because there, it, was, it was so intense. It was so intense of a moment in history and time that when you go from saying, okay, five of, five of the groups that I know for sure are going to go out and paddle because they're listening to what I'm saying about life and about justice. And it's not about just being a surfer because when this whole, when they sold it to us long time ago in the 60s, it was like this counterculture and they cared about the, you know, they cared about everything. Every, it was just like a, it was more, nature driven and not product driven and mm. so to see it kind of go back to the sea stewardship that it used to be is giving hope for a lot of people that thought that this was this thing was going to die and i think when people showed up by the thousands right on the initial day of it when we when we said okay this is the day and i wake up and indonesia had because so far ahead of us they had already had theirs and sent the picture. Mm. And it wasn't the amount. It was the intensity of the moment and realizing that what I was saying resonated around the world. I wasn't the only person that heard it. It wasn't just me and my friends who could listen to that message and say, give us that hope. Give us this moment to mourn, heal, and move on and progress in what and what we love, which is just being about civil rights and, 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 and the justice that needs to happen on land, the same way that it happens in the sea. They caught that by the thousands and responded. So for me, I like had a cup of coffee and I cried, you know, because I was so far ahead of it. You know, I was in Senegal. So I, <laughs> I, you know, I cried. And then as everybody started to wake up and more paddle out started to to I mean, I was like full. By the time we finally did it, you know, it was late in the evening, and at all these paddle outs had already happened. I'm like full on. If you see me on pictures, like my, it looks like I've been crying for like five days. My eyes were like just puffed out because, and it wasn't, it wasn't tears of sadness because I, it was in the morning. We were in mourning for these three lives that have been lost. It was the symbolism of hope that if we connect on every level, we can move the world, right? They just showed us. It was meant for the world. I just didn't think it was going to be received by the world. And that's the difference. And the fact that it was, was monumental. And that's what kept me going even to this day. Those paddle outs were powerful. You know, they've got such amazing footage that it's going to be a really important time to look back on. And I think it's really amazing that you were the driving force behind that. I think you should be really proud of all that. It's, it's pretty epic. And I'm going to flip that question 
and now ask you what your biggest challenge has been. What's been the most difficult thing that you've come across so far in your work? Can I be honest? Like, can I be like 100% honest right now? It's been men. It's really been, it has been, it's been men. And I would, I would love to lie about that and say it hasn't been, but it's, that's exactly what the problem was. And, and me moving in this circle, right? In this male dominated circle. Um, it's challenging when the girl actually knows what she's speaking. Like she, she's not making this up. She, she's got numbers. She's got statistics. When Nike calls you and asks you for statistics, you pretty much have sat down and figured out this plan, right? So I had this down. And uh, so it's your spin men. It's, it, and they want you, and there's two ways to this. You either have the male that absolutely doesn't believe that women should be in professional sports, or you have the men who feel like they didn't get attention for 30 years. And then here you come as a black woman, now you're getting attention. Why didn't I? And it becomes a me, me, me thing. And my visibility is irrelevant to the cause. The cause is that we make way for the future. It has nothing to do with me as a person. I'm not going out. Maybe I will at 80. I mean, Dr. Packerwood, he was still surfing like 92. But I feel like everybody's like, Yon, it's too late for you to, you know, go out there and professionally surf or whatever. There's a master's category, women. There is, <laughs> there's <laughs> <laughs> so I just want people to understand that. But, the, you know, this wasn't ever for me. This was always for that next generation. So the men have, that have blocked the way um, can now see that when the story is being told, the side of history that they'll be on now. There are people that are going to be really on, you know, that we loved and we cherished that are going to be on the wrong side of history because they kept from what's happening right now from happening or try to impede on the direction. And that has to be a conversation between me and the community, because a lot of people don't understand. There's a lot of people that don't want us to be here. And so we get blocked. I mean, even with the paddle outs, the KKK in Orange County had called and said that we were, they were gonna get shut down in Huntington Beach. And so we, of course, those are men. So we have to go and make sure that we have security. You know, every, every step of the way, it's been some problem or the other. You're dealing with the Federation in Senegal and it's all men and they're telling the WSL, hey, we don't see women as professional surfers. We don't see them in this space. That same person I came across in 2014 and kept, he didn't want to be included in the Africa Surf International because that woman doesn't know what she's talking about. But here this woman is <laughs> making gains and, and progressing the sport so that it's for everyone, boys, girls, women, tall, fat, whatever you're going through, like, I'm not here for just one. I'm here to say that this has been locked down for so long by so many people that it's time to open it up and let everybody be free to do exactly that. And why is this person better than this person in an advertisement? Why is this person um, not on your staff, but this person is? And why isn't it more colorful? And why doesn't it represent the world as if it's an entity that we should all be um, adhering to? Then it should look like the world as it is, right? Should have that diversity. And 
you know, that's that's it. That's basically been the the core of the. I call them distractions. They're just basically distractions because, you know, I only have about 30 seconds of attention span before I go and find a solution and figure it out to how to go around them. So, <laughs> you know, I'm here for a reason. I figured out the game and I figured out how to, um, like I'm like my dad said, Rhonda always play chess, never play checkers. And that's how I, I played this game is that it felt like every step of the way that I'm getting blocked. You know, the queen is the most important because she can move any way that she wants, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. What's coming up for you personally, for Black Girls Surf, any other projects? Is there anything exciting on the horizon? So, yeah, so we're introducing new programs. We're bringing the women's program back finally. Um, we took some time off. I just came back from our first retreat in Costa Rica. So we're adding the women's program back into, um, into view. We also have a whole new staff. So where we were focusing for um, the first couple of years on surf therapy and the mental state, we decided to bring in psychologists and people who are licensed to come in and work with the kids instead of us having this um, uh, environment of come and go and we can't really focus on the mental performance the the overall performance of each athlete we're starting to specialize and get people who are actually professionals in that field and and specific and that's what they're going to work with the kids on so we're narrowing down the camps to really focus on competition um because now we have and we weren't like that we could and we're going to go back to the other model soon but right now we're all concentrating on the 2024 Olympics and we're concentrating on all of the nationals. And then on the other side of that, we're concentrating on the WSL being the, in the regional areas and what we're going to do as far as our development camps. So we're bringing back the Africa Surf International Development um, Series that we started last year, but had to shut down because of COVID. So this is just a spring back now that everybody's been vaccinated planes can fly into other countries where we were blocked off South Africa, United States were, were blocking each other. Now we can all fly and be free. Um, and so now we're in the, in the beginning stages of putting that contest series. Now that contest series is going to change its name from Samunye Pro, which you saw on the WSL um, lineup, and it'll change to the Mama Africa Surf Series. And it's going to be just strictly a women's contest for the continent. And then in the US, the Calafia series will start here and we'll start doing developmental uh, camps for kids and women, just in case they wanna join the master's category. Cause I keep saying that, like I, you know, if we don't start vying for, for, you know, these competitions, then it's gonna reverse itself. If we don't actually, now that you have this opportunity, this open window, if you don't do that, they're gonna say, okay, well, they're not interested. So we're gonna block off this section for the people who really do want to be here but if they block it off for us and they say okay this is what you get this is what we're going to do for you and then you don't take those offers then you can't expect those offers to continue so my thing is to now that we have the gateway open to get as many surfers into competition seats as possible and then work from there so right now we have three girls in california who are going on there two of them are already competing one is now in line every Every country will have 15 on the elite squad. And that's where we started. Um, and that's where, we're, that's where we're finishing up. We have the girls down in Brazil. We're picking up girls, you know, almost 
every other month, it feels like we're, we're even donating funds. So we don't just have to sponsor you. We'll donate. If the girls say, listen, I have these contests and they apply with us, then we'll send them the fees. We've done it with two girls down in, in Brazil already, and hopefully we'll bring them on. We still have our scholarship programs. So the, the overall picture is to open up the series again, right, in a manner and with, and, and with Hurley's support because they've been waiting for me to get home, <laughs> right, so that they can actually help. <laughs> when you're stuck, you can't really do anything. But, you know, now that I'm home, I'm, I'm able to set up camps and run the performance training the way it's supposed to in partnership with the gyms, in partnership with the um, pro surfers, um, then we, now we have a program that is that can compete with everybody else. We want we want we want that same vibration that everybody else is pushing out. We want to push out quality athletes just like anybody else. So that's my goal. And I'm a coach and a trainer, so I'm pretty hard on my on my athletes about showing up and being responsible and and honoring the sport of surfing. If that's where you want to be, you know, there's a lot of free surfing that you can do, but within the Black Girl Surf camp or the inkwell camps we're very focused on performance and progression so i know a lot of people say okay well you know do you have volunteer camps and yes we do we still do the free camps we're still giving free lessons um, most of the women in, in africa who come to our club in on in yof can get free lessons that that was something that i left with the staff anyone that wants to come in and they're a female they're surfing for free, whether they're a part of the club or not. So we're over there handing out boards, you know, just on the beach, just for branding people who want to learn how to surf. And our instructors are there. So that's where we're doing more training camps, um, more offerings for black women. Last year, we did um, a training for 10 women around internationally to be trained as certified surf instructors. So now there's officially 10 on the roster that you can choose from. Um, and they're going on to be surf coaches. I just saw somebody go over, um, just got hired over at one of the other clubs. And, and that's fantastic because that's what we wanted the girls to be able to do. Get these skills, go off somewhere where you're going, it's going to progress the sport. I don't care where you are. You don't have to be at Black Girls Surf. You don't have to be at Inkwell Surf. You, we're training you to go out and become something in the community, not just to stay within the confines of, of Black Girls Surf, but the, this, the offerings are there. I think that's amazing that you're harnessing that community leadership, giving them the, the tools to, to run with it themselves. That's, that's really cool. I'm going to ask one last question now, Rhonda. Um, what's your dream scenario for Black Girl Surf? If you could predict what it could become in, say, five or ten years. So in five years, the L.A. Games will be here, the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. So I would like to see at least... Five of my girls in that Olympic game. That's the goal here. That's where we're trying to get these girls to. Trying to get them to represent their countries in the Olympics. So if I have one for each, from each country, I'm satisfied. If the U.S. team has one African-American that represents all African-Americans here, then, then I'm 100% I'm behind that. But right now, it's to just diversify the scenery and get these girls where they need to be because all of them, even the 10 year old said she wants to go to the Olympics. And if we're looking at 2028 from here, it's a possibility for her if she trains, if she stays focused and if she stays, you know, dedicated to the sport. I really hope that happens. And 
Um, I want to thank you for your massive contribution in building what I think is a, a civilized, balanced and more intelligent society. There's more to it than just surfing what you're doing. And I think anyone that's just listened to this will will see that it's multi-layered in social justice, including people, friendship, happiness, goal setting. There's so much to it. And I think you're a wonderful storyteller as well. It's great listening to you me and many other people are going to be fully behind you with the LA Olympics. Man, that must be so exciting. I'm excited. Like I'm excited about 2024, but I'm, I'm really excited about 2028, especially given the fact that my girls are right on track to be that age to participate. So that is like the height. And that's why we decided to cut all the fat off of all the programs. There's a lot of, there was a lot of glitz and glamour we were doing. So that we're not letting the press come to the trainings anymore. We're not doing any more films. We are focused, dead set on what we're doing now and, and the future Olympics. That's it. Like we're, we're here. And now it's time to, to get to work. <laughs> it's time. Thanks for listening and remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to support our work at Wavechanger, head over to our website at wavechanger.org and we hope you'll consider buying a membership for our Wavechanger Club, which features giveaways, entries into our monthly draw with amazing prizes and access to a bunch of great discounts from our partner brands. Your support allows us to expand our impact and make an even bigger difference to safeguarding our planet. See you next time.